Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of Ready for Retirement. If you just listened to the intro episode, welcome back. As I mentioned, three of these episodes are going to be released on the first day. And this is a show about retirement. How do you win at retirement? And one of the biggest things that you can do to improve your retirement is to optimize your taxes, to ensure that you're paying less in taxes when you're done working so that you can keep as much of your income at that point as possible. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about four different ways that you can reduce your taxes at that point. Now, some of these may apply to you. Some may not. There's certainly others. But these are four common things I look at with clients to make sure that they are getting the most out of their retirement income as possible. First item is this. Number one, the first thing that you can do to reduce your taxes in retirement is to max your social security benefit. Now, why do I say that? Okay, maxing your social security benefit, that's good. It helps you to increase your income. But one thing that people often don't think about is not only are you increasing your income, but social security is taxed differently than say a distribution from an IRA or a 401k is. If you take a distribution from an IRA in retirement, you're paying federal taxes on that and you're paying state taxes on that, depending upon whatever your federal and state tax bracket are. With social security though, A part of Social Security is included in your federal taxes, meaning you'll pay part of it, but you're not paying taxes on the full amount. In addition to that, a lot of states don't actually tax Social Security. So I'm in California. If you live in California, you will not have your Social Security benefit taxed when you retire. So how does that impact you? Let's look at a couple ways. Number one, let's assume you take a $1,000 distribution from your IRA in retirement just to do an apples to apples comparison. Well, if you're married and if your taxable income is, let's say, $100,000 in retirement, your federal tax bracket that you're in, the marginal tax bracket that you're in is 22%, and your California marginal tax bracket is about 8%. So combined, you're right at 30%, which means if you take $1,000 out of your IRA, after you pay taxes, you're left with $700. Let's look at that same thing now, though. What if you were taking that from Social Security? Now, I get that Social Security is not like a liquid account that you can draw from like an IRA, but let's just look at what would another $1,000 of Social Security benefit do for you at that time. So if you take $1,000 in Social Security, assuming same tax brackets, the first thing that we need to note is only up to 85% of your Social Security benefit is included in your taxable income. So as you're filing taxes, 15% of your Social Security, whatever your income is, it's not even included in what you're paying taxes on. So right off the bat, if you're in the 22% federal tax bracket, you're paying 22% on $850 of that $1,000 of Social Security income you received, not the full $1,000. Now, on top of that, if you're in California and many other states, there is no state tax as well. So if you take that $1,000, if it was from your IRA, you're paying 8% of that in state taxes. If it's from Social Security, you're paying nothing in state taxes. So once you take that into account, the $1,000 from Social Security, you're actually keeping $813 of that, as opposed to the $700 you would have kept if you took that distribution from an IRA. Now, this is something people don't often think of. They just look at where can I get better income or more return on my investment? Is it from my investments or is it from Social Security? Well, that's a good question, and that's where you always want to start. But then in addition to that, you want to understand where you're going to keep more of your income once you take it. In this example, you kept 16% more of each dollar 
when we compared IRA distributions versus Social Security income, you kept 16% more of every dollar you received from Social Security as opposed to a dollar you would have taken out of your IRA. Now, that's one thing to keep in mind. So when I say max Social Security, you might be saying, James, okay, that's great, but I know that Social Security is based on how much income I've earned over the course of my lifetime. Social Security takes your highest 35 years of earnings and it averages that, and that's how they determine how much your benefit's going to be. Now, if you're approaching retirement, maybe it's a year away or two years away, maybe it's a month away, you don't have much control over how much extra you can earn right now to increase your benefit. And that doesn't matter. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about when I say max social security is look potentially to see, does it make sense to delay collecting? Now, again, what I'm always going to say repeatedly on this podcast is this should depend on your specific financial plan. You should have a strategy in place. But one thing you should absolutely consider is does it make sense to delay collecting social security? Because as that benefit goes up, it's not just the income that's higher, but it's the after-tax income that's higher as well. So in some cases, it may make sense to not collect it at 65 or 66 or whenever you retire. Maybe you spend those first few years in retirement living off of savings or your 401k or your IRA or other income sources, which allows Social Security to continue growing. And then when you receive that benefit, it's very tax advantaged. So something certainly to think about in retirement. Now, some states do tax Social Security to some extent. Those states are Colorado, Connecticut, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Dakota, Rhode Island, Utah, Vermont, and West Virginia. If you live in one of those states, there is some state income tax collected to some extent. The way that they collect it is different in each state, but if you don't live in one of those states I just listed, what that means is Social Security is not taxable at the state level. So that's one way that you can reduce taxes in retirement is make sure that you're maxing the income that can come from Social Security because that income is better treated from a tax standpoint than income from an IRA or pension or something like that. So that's the first thing that you can look at. Now, on top of that, one of the things that you're going to look at when you determine how much of your Social Security is taxable at the federal level is you have to look at something called your provisional income. Now, your provisional income, the way this works is if you're married, if your provisional income is less than $32,000 per year, you actually have 0% of your Social Security benefit taxed. Now, a lot of listeners are saying, James, that's great, but who can live or very few people can live on less than $32,000 per year in retirement? Well, right, but this is not your total income. This is what's called your provisional income. And there's a few different things that are added in as you calculate that income. But what it includes is half of your Social Security benefit to start with. So let's say that between you and a spouse, you have total Social Security income of $50,000. So $25,000 per year each. Well, you would take half of that. So half of 50 is $25,000. And that's included in your provisional income. So right there, you're underneath that threshold of $32,000. And then from there, another thing that's not included in provisional income is Roth IRA distributions. So if you're just living on Social Security and Roth IRA distributions because you had a good tax strategy along the way, I have many clients that pay no taxes in retirement because they did a great job of putting money into Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks or doing Roth conversions along the way so that their income is well above $32,000, but their provisional income is below $32,000. And because of that, they're paying zero taxes on their Social Security And Roth IRA distributions are tax-free anyways, so they're not paying taxes on that as well. 
So if your provisional income is less than 32,000, 0% of your social security is included in your taxable income. If it's between 32,000 and 44,000, and again, these numbers are if you're married filing jointly, between 32,000 and 44,000, half of your social security benefit is included in your taxable income. And for most people, if you make more than 44,000, or if your provisional income, I should say, is more than 44,000, then 85% of your social security benefit is included in your taxable income. From there, that's where it's capped. So even if your provisional income is a million dollars a year, you still are only having 85% of your social security benefit included in your taxable income. And that's one of the reasons that it's so important to look at not just how much income you're going to receive from social security as compared to other sources, but what's the after-tax amount of that income that you actually get to keep. So the first way to reduce taxes in retirement is to maximize social security. The second way is through something called asset location. Asset location is just a fancy way of saying, put the things that don't have good tax treatment in the accounts that are tax deferred. Put the things that do have favorable tax treatment in your accounts that are taxable. So let's take an example. When you have a portfolio, it's going to grow in one of three ways. There's dividends, there's interest, and there's capital gains, which is just growth on your money. So let's say you're retiring and you have a standard 60-40 portfolio, 60% of your portfolio in stocks and 40% of your portfolio in bonds. Now, if this portfolio averages 6% per year, well, some of that is going to be from interest on your bonds or your cash holdings. Some of that growth is going to be dividends from your stocks. And some of that was going to be growth or the increase in value on your stocks or even some of your bonds. Now, all these different things, dividends, interest, capital gains, they're taxed differently. So dividends and interest are taxed at ordinary income rates. Now, there's interest from municipal bonds, and those are taxed differently in some federal bonds. But ordinary dividends and interest on just a regular corporate bond, those are taxed at ordinary income rates. And at federal levels, that's between 10% and 37%. So 10 is the lowest tax bracket, 37 is the highest tax bracket. So wherever you fall in your federal taxes, you're going to pay that same tax on any dividends or most interest that you receive. Capital gains, though, are taxed at a lower rate. In 2020, if you're married filing jointly, if your income is between zero and $80,000, you actually pay 0% on any capital gains. So if you generate gains and your income is less than $80,000, you're paying no taxes on those gains. But if you earned interest or dividends, you would still pay taxes on that because it's taxed differently. If your income is between $80,000 and about $496,000, you pay 15% federally on capital gains. And if you earn more than $496,600, you pay 20% on those capital gains. Now, this is just a federal tax. There's also potentially state tax depending upon where you live. California, for example, doesn't have tax preferential treatment for capital gains. It just treats it the same way it treats ordinary income. There also may be a 3.8% Medicare surcharge, depending upon your net investment income. So if your income and your capital gains are high enough, there may be an additional tax as well. But in general, as you look at this, knowing the dividends, interest, and capital gains are taxed differently is the important thing. Because when you go to build your portfolio, going back to that 60-40 mix we just mentioned, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. Let's say you have an IRA and let's say you have just a joint account, you and your spouse, and half of your money is in the joint account, half of it is in the IRA. 
If you're going to build out your portfolio, whether you're using individual stocks or mutual funds or individual bonds or bond, it doesn't matter. What you want to look at is it may not make sense to buy the same exact stocks or funds in the IRA as it does in your joint account. You don't need to take your standard portfolio and purchase the same exact investments in each so that they're mirror images of each other. What you want to look to do is you want to say of that portfolio, which of the funds or which of the investments that you own, which have the worst tax treatment, which are going to pay the highest taxes on when you generate those dividends or that income. Those are the investments that you actually want to hold in your IRA or your 401k. The investments that do have better tax treatment so that they paid capital gains, those are the types of investments that probably make more sense to hold in your taxable account. Because again, in your taxable account, any capital gains on that are taxed lower than potential interest or dividends would be. So if you take a look at investments, there's certain stocks. You know, For example, FANG stocks are popular. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. I know Apple's included in there, but let's just look at those first four. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Not a recommendation to own them, but if you did, if, that was, if those were stocks that you owned, those could be great investments to own outside of an IRA in your joint account. The reason being, none of those companies actually pay any dividends. Any growth that you're getting from them is just a capital gain, meaning appreciation or increase in value in your investment. And let's say you also have bonds or high-yield bond funds or stocks that do pay high dividends. That's great, but maybe you want to own those accounts in your IRA because as those dividends are paid or as interest is paid on bonds, if it's in your IRA, all that is completely tax deferred. So I often say asset allocation, so what's your mix of stocks or bonds? Asset allocation determines how much growth you can expect to earn on your money. What's your mix of stocks and bonds? That's going to determine your long-term rate of return. Asset location determines how much of that return you're actually going to keep after taxes because you take advantage of the different types of accounts you have and strategically place different investments in each. All right. Now, the third way that you can reduce taxes in retirement is kind of a tag along or an add on to the, what we just spoke about. And it's focus on more than just dividends. That's the third way you can reduce taxes. Focus on more than just dividends. I oftentimes see people retire and they say, okay, it's time to take all of our stock money and whatever portion we want in stocks, we only want high dividend payers because those stocks are going to generate income for us that we can live on in retirement. And so I'll see people come in with these stocks that pay 4%, 5%, 8%, 10% dividends, nothing necessarily wrong with it. But if that's all you're focusing on, well, for a couple reasons, that might not be ideal. The first reason that might not be ideal is number one, companies typically pay higher dividends if they can't reinvest their earnings at a greater rate of return. So if you're a stock, if you're a company, you're the CEO of a company, what happens is your company generates profits. Now, at the end of the year or throughout the year, you look at those profits and you say, what's the best use of these funds? Do we reinvest them in the business because there's a lot of growth opportunities in front of us and we can increase the value of our company? Or do we pay them out to our shareholders in the form of dividends? So oftentimes the companies are paying the highest dividends. They're doing so because there may not be great opportunities for that company to continue growing. So in some ways, it's risky to put all of your money in high dividend paying stocks because that's a, that only represents one part of the market. And sometimes those companies don't necessarily have great prospects to reinvest in. Not saying that's always the case, but I've certainly seen instances where it was. Now, number two, from a tax perspective, the tax treatment isn't desirable, as we just mentioned. If you're doing all of your investing in a 401k or an IRA or a Roth IRA, this doesn't matter. 
As we just mentioned, whether you're receiving dividends or interest or capital gains, it's all completely tax deferred or tax free depending upon the account it's in. So it doesn't matter how you're generating your return. But if you're doing your investing outside of an IRA, if it's a trust account or a taxable account or brokerage account, all generally the same thing. As you're receiving those dividends, it's fun to see that maybe you have a stock that's paying a 6% dividend, but after taxes, that might turn into 4 4.5%. And that's not what you want. You want to make sure that you're focusing on something called the total return. Total return being, yes, dividends, but also what's the growth in terms of the value of your investments, also including interest and things like that. So focus on more than just dividends as a way of saying, don't just focus on high dividend paying stocks. Number one, it might not be the best investment strategy to start with. And then number two, it's certainly not the most tax preferential treatment either when you're looking at how those dividends will be taxed. All right. And now the fourth way that you can reduce taxes in retirement. The fourth way is through reducing IRMA surcharges. Now, this is an interesting one. IRMA stands for income-related monthly adjustment amount. Again, income-related monthly adjustment amount, I-R-M-A-A, IRMA. Now, it's not technically a tax, but it is an added fee you will pay for Parts B and or D of Medicare if your income is above a certain level. So this is something that if you're below the age of 65, you don't necessarily need to worry about at all, except for the fact that there is a look back when they're calculating your IRMA surcharge, they look back a couple of years. But if you're, if you're in your 50s or early 60s, this doesn't really apply, but take note of it because it certainly will apply later in retirement. What IRMA is, is when you go to pay Medicare, when you're eligible for Medicare, part A of Medicare is free. And I'm saying free in air quotes because you've essentially paid for it your whole life. By paying payroll taxes, FICA taxes, a part of every dollar you've ever earned went to pay for Medicare. So when you go for Medicare, when you're eligible, you don't pay anything additional for your Part A benefit. What you do pay, or I should say your Part A premium. Your Part B premium, though, the standard Part B premium for 2020 is $144.60. That's how much you're going to pay for your Medicare Part B premium. Now, where IRMA comes into play, where the surcharge comes into play, is if you're married filing jointly and your income, your modified adjusted gross income is less than $174,000, and I'll have all this information in show notes. So if you're listening to this and trying to scratch down notes, go to the podcast website, readyforretirement.co, and all this will be listed there for you so you can access it pretty easily. So if your modified adjusted gross income is less than $174,000 and you're married, or if it's less than $87,000 per year and you're single, you have no surcharge. Meaning you don't pay any extra than that $144.60 for your Part B premium. But as your income starts to go up, if you're married and your income's between $174,000 and $218,000, if you're single, it's just half of that. If that's the case, then your Part B premium, you pay an additional $57.80 on top of the $144.60, and you pay an additional $12.20 on your Part D premium as well. If your income is between $218,000 and $272,000, you pay an additional $144.60, so you essentially pay double for your Part B premium, and you pay $31.50 surcharge for your Part D premium, and that goes all the way up to where if you're making $750,000 or above per year, your Part B premium is $347 per year, and your Part D premium is $76.40 per year. I shouldn't say that's a premium. That's the surcharge on your premium, so an additional to the standard Part B. 
So what this means is, no, this is not technically a tax, but as you are retired, as you're looking at your income, it is going to determine how much you're paying in fees for your Part B and Part D premiums for Medicare. So one way to look at this is, let's say you're in retirement and you know exactly how much you need to live on. Well, this isn't me telling you that you should reduce your lifestyle so that you can qualify for lower Part B premiums or lower Medicare premiums. What it is saying, though, is consider where you're taking that income. So maybe you want to live on $200,000 per year. Great. That's going to put you into an income bracket where you're paying a premium or you're paying a surcharge. But that $200,000 per year, it could come from an IRA, could come from Social Security, it could come from cash, it could come from a Roth IRA. And each of those things is taxed differently. If you take Roth distributions, that's not counted towards your modified adjusted gross income. So maybe you take just enough out of your Roth, for example, to stay underneath that threshold so that you don't bump up into the next premium amount or the next surcharge amount. So it's just a way of saying as you're looking at your income, you first want to figure out what do you want to live on to do everything you want to do in retirement. Then from there, it's how do you make sure that you're pulling income from the right places to keep your income low enough to avoid some of these surcharges as well as the other taxes we already spoke about. So those are the four ways. Of course, there's plenty more, but these are four common things I always look at with clients to make sure they're paying the least amount of possible in taxes in retirement. The first, max social security. Not necessarily saying max your own benefit, but delay collecting social security sometimes makes a lot of sense because social security income is taxed more favorably than income from IRAs or pensions or other sources like that. Number two was focus on your asset location. So once you've determined your mix of stocks and bonds and cash and different types of stocks and bonds and cash, make sure that you're putting the types of investments that are more tax efficient inside of your taxable accounts. Make sure that you're putting the investments that are less tax efficient inside of things like IRAs or Roth IRAs, where those gains or the interest or the dividends are tax deferred or even tax free. Number three, focus on more than just dividends. In retirement, yes, it's all about how do you create an income stream, but focusing on dividends isn't the only way to do that. And dividends, as we mentioned, can be taxed at a less preferential rate than other forms of gain. And then finally, number four, not technically a tax, but reduce your IRMA surcharges. This is the fee that you pay for Medicare. And by being strategic about how you're showing your income, you can keep those IRMA surcharges or those Medicare surcharges below a certain threshold so that you pay as little as possible for that same benefit. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Ready for Retirement. Again, the show notes and the resources for today's episode will be on the website at readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you're enjoying the show, or if you're just started listening, and you're not sure if you enjoy it yet, well, find out subscribe. Every single week, a new episode will be released. And if you subscribe, whether you're listening on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen, you'll be notified as soon as a new show comes out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.